Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today's episode is brought to you by audible.com and specifically The Storm Before the Storm by Mike Duncan. If someone had asked me a year ago if I wanted 10 hours of new History of Rome material, I'd have bitten their hand off. If you want to do the double, helping Mike and me, then go to audibletrial.com forward slash tvcritic and pick up the book for free. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium Episode 157, The Culmination. Last time, we wrapped up the decades-long Bulgarian War, as the 60-year-old Basil finally brought peace to the Balkans. Today, we bring the longest reign in Roman history to an end. One thing I didn't mention about the Bulgarian War was that it caused some financial difficulties back at the capital. As you know, Nicephorus' focus had tampered with the coinage to help pay for his annual campaigning, but we hear no more of money trouble until Basil's continuous attacks on Samuel's state. The need to provide campaign pay each summer and winter, to recruit reinforcements and to put Bulgarians on the payroll, all added up. Basil believed that general taxes could accommodate this, however consistent shortfalls led him to alter tax policy. As I've mentioned in the past, the Byzantine government assessed the value of farmland, and they expected tax to be paid on it regardless of the current profitability of individual farms. Rather than harass peasants mired in poverty, they collected tax from the village unit. So if a farm had been abandoned, everyone in the community would owe a little more. This system could be much resented in hard times, which Basil was sensitive to. So in cases where villagers had been killed in the war, the emperor ordered that local office holders make up the arrears. In many cases, the nearest office-holding landowner would be a member of the church. From our point of view, this was an eminently just decision, but it was twice objected to, officially, by the patriarch. Particularly when Basil paraded the treasures he'd captured in Bulgaria 
through the streets of the capital. However, the emperor refused to change the law, and the patriarch may not have realised that Basil's campaigns were far from over. Before we move forward, though, let's jump backwards a little. While the emperor was focused on the west, events continued to develop in the east. Although the Fatimid Caliphate no longer invaded Aleppo, they did interfere in the emirate's domestic politics. In 1004, Saif ad family were ousted from power by their chief minister. The minister continued to maintain the status quo, though, so Basil ignored the regime change. The minister's family were ousted themselves in 1016, and their successors called on the Fatimids to garrison Aleppo itself. This Basil could not tolerate, and so he issued a trading and travel ban on the emirate. The only exception were to be the Banu Kilab tribe, Bedouin, who'd lobbied the emperor for help. Antony Caldellis comments that the fact that the ban was successful is an indicator of the discipline which Basil had instilled in his officials later in his reign. The Vasilevs was off in Bulgaria, and this sort of thing would be very hard to police. But within two years, the new Fatimid commander of Aleppo had turned on Cairo, in part because of the economic consequences of not being able to trade with Byzantium. This commander, Fatik, was also worried about the unstable behaviour of his ruler. This was the caliph al-Hakim, dismissed by Western chroniclers as the Mad Caliph. He was known for executing his officials at the slightest provocation, and also launched nasty persecutions of Christians and Jews. In 1009, he destroyed the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, which could easily have provoked another emperor to war, but Basil didn't flinch. Instead, the emperor quietly celebrated when, in 1017, Fatik offered his submission to the Romans, turning the emirate of Aleppo back into a Byzantine ally. Fatik wanted Basil to help shield him from the Mad Caliph. By 1021, the situation in Aleppo looked like it would once again require the emperor's presence, in part because al-Hakim had made diplomatic contact with Georgie I of Abazgia. Now, we'll get to Georgie in a moment. Uh, he was contesting the Roman occupation of Tau and knew he needed allies if he was going to see off Basil. With the Bulgarian war over, the Vasilevs gathered up his army and marched across Anatolia. However, news now arrived that al-Hakim, the mad caliph, had died in mysterious circumstances. So instead of marching to Syria, the emperor led his men to the Caucasus instead. Now, I know that's a lot of information to take in, and I'm sorry to jump around with the chronology, but before we head north, I think we can wrap up events at Aleppo. With the caliph dead, Fatik 
the man in possession of the Amrit, tried to win favour with the new leaders of Cairo by bringing Aleppo back into the caliphate. But he was assassinated, and by 1025, the Amirate had fallen to the Banu Kilab tribe. They established the new Mirdasid dynasty of Aleppo, an independent state which rejected the Fatimids. Basil was perfectly content with this situation, even though the Emirate no longer paid the empire any tribute. All of that to say that from the empire's point of view, not a lot had changed in the east. A lot of activity had taken place, politics in Cairo and Aleppo did not stand still, but the overall strategic situation remained the same at the end of Basil's reign as it had been 20 years earlier. Aleppo was a neutral state that could be easily brought back into the Roman orbit if the emperor desired. Back to 1021 then, and Basil took his men north to Tau. I'm always wary of trying to explain Georgian and Armenian politics in detail because it's so complicated. But Georgi was king of Abazgia and Kartli, until recently two separate states. At one point in time, he'd imagined that he would inherit the lands of Tau as well, and this would have created a united Iberian or Georgian kingdom, which was obviously a tempting prospect. About the same time that Bulgaria fell, Georgi invaded Upper Tau and defeated a Roman force sent to stop him. Basil was happy to settle this diplomatically, but news that the king was in touch with the caliph demanded a more forceful response. Marching into the mountains was a major undertaking. It required a lot of preparation, including providing repairs to certain fortresses, like Theodosiopolis. It was in that city that Basil set himself up and began ravaging the surrounding areas. Georgi retreated north, out of the emperor's reach, and apparently angry at this situation, the Vasilefs marched in his wake, taking prisoners and killing and blinding those who'd abetted the king's occupation. The Romans spent the winter in Trebizond selling off their slaves and continuing negotiations with Georgie. Apparently the king could see that resistance was somewhat futile and agreed to make peace. He accepted the Vasilefs as his suzerain and agreed to send his son as a hostage. This demonstration of imperial power had a dramatic effect on the neighbouring Armenian kingdoms. Following in the footsteps of Tehran and Tau, the king of Vaspurakan, Senekerim, offered his lands to Basil. You can see Vaspurakan on the map. It's southeast of Lake Van, a long way from the centres of Roman power. Apparently, Senekerim was struggling to cope with raids on his land, including the first Turkish inroads into the eastern Caucasus. So why not surrender your kingdom to the Romans in exchange for the security and wealth that he could acquire inside the empire? 
Basil appointed him Stratikos of Cappadocia and gave him large estates around Sebastea. Meanwhile, Roman officers and Bulgarian troops were dispatched to Vasporakan to occupy various forts. Around the same time, Sumbat III, Lord of Ani, pledged his own small realm to the Byzantines upon his death. You can see Ani on the map, not far from the old Sassanid capital of Armenia, Devin. Apparently, Sumbat had aided Georgie in his occupation of Tau, and was now terrified of Basil's wrath. In this context, we can see the effectiveness of the emperor's mass blindings. Basil agreed to the deal, which was essentially the same one he'd made all those years ago with David of Tau. Basil and his army stayed in the area well into 1022 to sort out the administration of the new territories. But worrying news arrived that spring that a rebellion was brewing back in Anatolia. During his wars in Bulgaria, Basil had appointed new families to positions of command to take the place of the allies of Phocas and Scleros. The descendants of these men will become emperors and important leaders over the next century. Naturally, this had bred resentment amongst the elites of eastern Anatolia, who for so long had ruled the roost. They had remained politically quiet since the end of the civil wars. Basil had confiscated plenty of their land, and now he was handing it over to new migrants. Several prominent Bulgarian families were given plum estates in Anatolia, and now various Armenians were moving in too. The appointment of Senekerim to the command of Cappadocia, the Focus heartland, seems to have been the final straw. The rebellion centred on two men. One was Nicephorus Xiphias, the man who'd led the ambush at the Battle of Clydion. He was one of Basil's ablest sub-commanders and was currently Stratikos of the Anatolikon. It was Xiphias who seems to have been the prime mover behind the conspiracy. He was in command of troops and would have to face down Basil in any future battle. He knew, though, that he didn't have the name to inspire loyalty from the local population. But he knew a man who did. His co-conspirator was Nicephorus Phocas, the rebel Bardas Phocas's youngest son. Nicephorus had gone with Bardas Skliros and submitted to Basil at the end of the civil wars. He'd thus been allowed to remain a wealthy, if politically irrelevant, landowner. But Xiphias put him forward as a candidate for the throne, and the people of the area offered him their support. Another reason Xiphias was keen to involve Phocas was the traditional connection between the Phocads and the Georgians. Remember Bardas's dependence on David of Tau. If Xiphias was going to defeat Basil, he would definitely need Georgie's help, and possibly Cairo's too. The emperor was deeply concerned by this development. 
He'd spent so much of his life battling the eastern magnates, and it seemed like he would never fully silence them. He was in a vulnerable position, too. He was wedged between two enemies in unfamiliar territory, and he was concerned that his own troops might turn on him if he didn't act quickly. Modern historians surmise that Xiphias acted because Basil had not designated a successor. Aside from his aging brother Constantine, no imperial heir existed. If Xiphias could promise something tempting to the troops in the emperor's camp, it was possible that they would see a brighter future under the younger man. But by summer, the rebellion was over. Loyalty to Basil was stronger than some thought. Agents of the emperors got Phocas alone and killed him. Without a focus to front the usurpation, Xiphias was soon abandoned and imprisoned. For the second time in his life, Basil paraded a severed focus head to his men to prove that the rebellion was over. The war in the north, though, continued. Basil sent Phocas's head on to Georgie. The king had negotiated with the rebels, and so the emperor demanded some compensation. This was part of what motivated Basil to expand Roman control into the mountains. He didn't want alliances to form between the Armenians and his eastern magnates. The Romans began capturing forts, and Georgie attempted to ambush them. This plan was a fiasco, with Basil's men routing the troops sent against them. Georgie put his hands up and asked for peace, and was granted it. Actually catching the Iberian king would require a dangerous trek into more isolated regions. Hence why Basil was so lenient with him. The emperor occupied the forts he was entitled to, and waited until Georgie's son and other senior hostages were safely in his care. Then he finally returned home. Once again, Basil had achieved things which no Roman emperor had ever come close to. Not only had he reinforced his dominance over the Georgian and Armenian worlds, but he'd extended the boundaries of the empire further east than they'd ever been. The Roman Empire of ancient times had not reached this far into the mountains. You might be expecting to hear that the mid-60s Basil was finally going to put his feet up. But not a bit of it. Upon reaching home, the emperor made plans to reconquer the one piece of imperial territory which his predecessors had failed to capture. Sicily. I'm going to do something that might seem unusual. I'm not going to talk about Byzantine Italy as part of the narrative. You may have noticed that it hasn't featured at all during Basil's reign. Events elsewhere have required so much attention that I always felt jumping to Italy for brief updates would only make the episodes more confusing. So I've decided to deal with Italy as its own end-of-the-century episode. Events there are tied to the papacy, Venice, the Holy Roman Empire, and the Fatimid presence on Sicily. So why not wrap all those together to give events their proper context? 
What I will say, though, is that there was a certain element of disunity between the Arabs of Sicily, and that Basil's sub-commanders had successfully pacified southern Italy by the 1020s. The groundwork was therefore laid for an imperial fleet to safely cross the sea and attempt to retake the island. In the summer of 1025, an advanced squadron crossed from Italy and safely landed at Messina. Presumably, the next spring, Basil himself would have sailed with a large armada and attempted to complete the conquest. But in mid-December, the emperor fell ill and reportedly knew that his time was up. He summoned his brother Constantine from his palatial house arrest and issued his funeral instructions. He asked not to be buried in the Church of the Holy Apostles, as most emperors were. Instead, he wanted to be laid to rest in the Church of St. John the Theologian, which was outside the city, next to the Hebdomen Parade Grounds. And then he died. Basil II was 67 years old. He had been hailed as emperor his whole life, but had only exercised power for 49 of them. No Roman emperor in history ruled for longer. Without question, Basil is one of the greatest emperors in Roman history. Sometimes we forget that just surviving could be a huge effort in itself, that mastering the machinery of government was a serious challenge, and that establishing your legitimacy and right to rule was no simple thing. When it comes to the basics of being emperor, of exercising power, of keeping the empire together, it's hard to think of a better exponent of the art than Basil II. To be able to leave the capital for such long periods of time shows the mastery he established over his administration. To maintain the loyalty of his armies over decades and to emerge victorious from every war is the mark of an expert and highly vigilant general. To leave behind no record of dissension at the capital but endless stories of your brutality shows a man who understood the value of propaganda. On the positive side of the ledger, I think Basil was the culmination of the Macedonian dynasty. Basil I, Leo VI, and Romanus had all spent a good deal of time trying to forge links with the Armenian and Caucasian worlds, trying to get men on the payroll to ensure that they wouldn't support the Arabs any more. Phokas and Zimisces then showed the value of the direct approach by taking their armies into enemy territory. Basil combined the two methods to great success. Despite his endless wars and occasional viciousness, Basil was not a slayer. He did not want conflicts to go on forever. He was always seeking peace. But he realized that you could only get so far negotiating from the comfort of the palace. You had to take the army around the provinces, show it to your neighbors, and remind them why submission was sensible. 
Thanks to this combination, he left the empire safer and wealthier than it had been in half a millennium. Basil's place of burial and the epitaph he had inscribed on his tomb tell us what he wanted to be remembered for. The Hebdomon parade grounds were where troops mustered before marching off into the Balkans. They were near the Sea of Marmara and the Golden Gate. They were the place where triumphal processions began. And it's in a church here that Basil chose to be buried. Historian Paul Stevenson points out that Basil's funeral procession would therefore have been a triumph in reverse. His body would be taken out of the palace, through the streets, and end where some of his greatest moments had begun. He would spend eternity, as he'd spent his life, watching over his soldiers. His epitaph comments on this unusual location. Past emperors designated for themselves other burial places. I, Basil the Purple-Born, place my tomb on the site of the Hebdomen, and take Sabbath's rest from the endless toils which I satisfied in war. For nobody saw my spear at rest from when the Emperor of Heaven called me to the rulership of this great empire on earth. I kept vigilant through the whole span of my life, guarding the children of new Rome. Marching bravely to the west, and as far as the very frontiers of the east, the Persians and Scythians bear witness to this, and along with them Abascos, Ishmael, Arabs, Eber, and now you, looking upon this tomb, reward it with prayers in return for my campaigns. Basil is clear that he should be remembered as a soldier emperor. His greatest pride is in those endless campaigns he fought to protect Romania. The location of the church next to the military parade ground seems obvious, but it also signifies Basil's desire to be close to the people. The imperial mausoleum was not open to the public, whereas the church which Basil now rested in was. He encouraged visitors to come to his resting place and pay their respects. Is this the gesture of the loneliest emperor? The man who married his army? who was so dedicated to his office that he never had a family of his own? For all our glimpses of the character of the Vasilevs, it still feels like we don't know him at all when it comes to this most alien of choices. Why did Basil not have a family? We've already discussed some of the possibilities but let's skip the speculation and go straight for the heart of the problem. Even though every other Roman emperor got married, 
many of them had been unable to leave a surviving son to take over. So the same position Basil was in. But all of them, to a man, put some kind of successor in place. Even those like Anastasius and Justinian, who lived to be old men without designating an heir, had male relatives hanging around. Whatever reason they had for vacillating, they knew that someone capable was standing by. But Basil had no one, and seems to have actively prevented the Macedonian dynasty from continuing. This is the negative side of the ledger. Basil left behind him his 65-year-old brother, who had two daughters. Both women were now around 40 and unmarried. We're told at one point that Basil loved his nieces, but that he took no part in their upbringing. Modern historians suggest that he must have had one part to play, and that was deciding that neither of them would get married. Now, we don't know this, but it is the obvious conclusion to draw from an imperial dynasty that was now destined to die out. Having fought so hard to wrestle power from the older generation, it seems that Basil was no keener to surrender influence to a younger one. If it was his choice that his nieces would remain unmarried, we are at a loss to explain this decision. The Macedonians had struggled so hard to survive. Leo VI and his four marriages, Constantine VII's frustrating time in the shadows. Why, after all that, would Basil allow the dynasty to wither away? Unless that was the point. Is it possible that Basil, having spent a fraught youth as the plaything of eunuchs and generals, did not wish that fate on his own kin? It would make his decision out to be a strangely noble one, but it smacks too much of forethought for me. After all, Constantine could have had sons, and it's hard to imagine Basil disinheriting them in the same way. It seems more likely that Basil didn't arrange marriages for his nieces, and they didn't put pressure on him to do so, and the situation drifted. It's possible that they were all satisfying their needs in private and just didn't make public arrangements. Perhaps Basil maintained a loyalty to his brother and always promised to leave him the throne. Maybe he was happy to leave him a secure empire to rule and hoped that he would make sensible arrangements for his own succession. Whatever the truth, I'm afraid Basil deserves a good deal of criticism for this decision. The succession is one of the most vital things for an emperor to manage. We've seen time and again that uncertainty over the top job can lead to civil war and disastrous foreign invasion. Basil had a responsibility to ensure that someone competent took over from him, or at least took over from Constantine. By not doing so, he failed the Roman people. Not just in general, but in the specific. Basil must have known that by ruling for so long, he'd created a model of emperorship that others would need to imitate. In other words, no one 
politically relevant, could remember a time before Basil. So their idea of the Vasilefs was that he would be powerful, wise, and always at the head of the army. Constantine was unlikely to have the skills to handle the state the way his brother had. He had no relationship with the military. Who was going to maintain what Basil had established? By giving no apparent thought to this, he invited chaos and confusion. Now, the state will not fall apart in his absence, and of course a nominated successor can fail or die unexpectedly, but to actively discourage succession planning was a foolish thing to do, and so unlike the diligent concern that Basil showed to the health of the empire in all other areas. So we say goodbye to Basil, still not really understanding him. He remains hard to see, hard to assess. He did, however, take Byzantium to a recognisable peak. He secured and consolidated the gains made under the Macedonian dynasty. And over the course of our end-of-the-century episodes, we will hopefully uncover the prosperity and strength which he helped foster during his half-century in power. This is your last chance to send in questions for this century. As this episode goes live, I am away on a week's vacation, my first week off since Christmas. In the last 44 weeks, I've produced 39 episodes, which I'm very pleased with, but I am a little burnt out. There will now be a short period of silence before episodes resume. As you know, the end of the century always takes longer to produce than the narrative episodes. Some topics I have to look at from scratch, others just require a lot of reading to pull out scraps that shed light on this period. I will update you on Istanbul plans, and I'll also need to produce another Byzantine story at some point. I have a lot to do, so please bear with me. There is no need to ask if the podcast is coming back. This is my full-time job now, and I am always working on it. In the meantime, wherever you are in the world, you can get 10 hours of Mike Duncany goodness for free at audibletrial.com forward slash tvcritic. That will sign you up for an Audible subscription. You can get a free audiobook every month, and the first month is free. You can cancel any time. I pay £8 a month, and I find having a book on the go really helps when I have no good podcasts to turn to. And you know Mike is good. Check out The Storm Before the Storm and help the history of Byzantium while you do it. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.